Thanks, Brian, and thanks, worship team, and good morning, everyone. What a joy to be back together in the building every week. It's a bit astonishing to see faces, actually, and not just masks, so I want to thank you uh, for being here. We're continuing a series in patience, and before we uh, go into it, I'll just ask a little bit of a survey question here. We're coming out of 18 months of social isolation. Uh, How many of you in the midst of social isolation, though it's been hard, have found it enjoyable not to be around certain annoying people? Is that true of anyone in the room? (laughs) Okay, if that's true of you, then this is a good sermon for you because we're talking about patience this morning and we're re-engaging and there is a muscle that has perhaps atrophied and it's the muscle that gives you the capacity to endure the annoyances of other people, right? And by the way, you're annoying too, so it's okay. We all need to learn this, but let's pray, and then we'll look at the text together. Father, thanks so much that we can gather here listening for your voice. I pray that you teach us now uh, and enable us to draw near to you, knowing that the fruit of drawing near to you is patience. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, As I just mentioned in prayer, we're in a series around around the theme of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And so every week we're articulating one of the different fruits with the understanding that when we really see this fruit, we see that our need for Christ is infinite because Christ alone can produce the fruit at the level and compassing consistency that we're called to enjoy. So we need to lean into Christ. In other words, this isn't a to-do list, like, oh, okay, this is patience week, so let's go out and be more patient. Instead, we're trying to draw near to Christ and allow him to shape us in all these areas. Having said that, I'll note that um, as we begin to re-engage, there's some evidence that this muscle of patience is really atrophied in our culture. There are uh, 42 dead or injured every month from road rage in our country. And so perhaps some of you have experienced road rage. If you haven't experienced road rage, try heading south on Interstate 5 today toward downtown because it reduces to one lane. That's going to be a lot of fun for everybody living in Seattle. Uh, so there's a challenge here in that we're re-engaging and now we have to deal with people again, and that can be hard, right? So we, we want to talk about that. One sociologist notes that rage ripens in cultures approximately every 50 years. In other words, when you go back and you look at the, the history of the United States, there were, there were seasons of rage, people really angry at each other and, and presenting that anger in violence and mean-spirited words. It was, a, it was a pandemic in 1920. It happened again in 1970, and now we're we're in 2020, 21, 22. It's, it seems to be happening again. There's this rage season that we find ourselves in. And the rage seasons are often tied to concentrations of wealth and perceived corruption, which conspire to create this low-level anger, like we're just upset with the way the world is. And when I'm, when I'm just in general upset with the way the world is, 
and then someone cuts me off, I display. Or uh, somebody takes a table at Starbucks, says, just as I'm going to the door and it was a table I'm going to take. I get really angry. That's this, right? So we're going to look at this and understand that as we're in the midst of re-engaging in our world on a face-to-face basis, we need to consider what God has to say about patience. Because patience will shine as a light in the midst of the prevailing frustration and anger that we see in our culture. And so what I want to do is look at a definition of patience this morning, and then the example of patience found in Moses, and then again the example of patience found in Jesus. So those are, that's where we're going. We're looking at a definition of patience. Two examples. Patience found in uh, Moses, patience found in Jesus. Now, the word patience in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, when we come to the definition, the word patience in the Greek language is macrothumia, not that that matters to any of us. But what's interesting about the word patience is there are several meanings to the word patience. This word is used first to describe God's patience in response to us as humans. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says, God is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should be led to salvation. So God is waiting, 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 right? And so there's that level of patience. And then patience is also describing our ability to endure for a long time various forms of opposition and suffering that would come our way. So if, you, if you're in a, uh, uh, a relationship that is, you know, not working, and you don't just, you know, bam, walk, but you work at it, in that working, there will be endurance. If you're in a good, what would be called a healthy relationship, it's probably in part because of endurance, right? Because you're willing to put up with things that are petty annoyances and you don't allow them to grow into major grievances. And and that kind of leads to uh, this final thing, which is this kind of gentleness that allows you to put up with weaknesses in others and annoyances in others. In other words, not everybody does things the way that you do things. And so we all have to learn that our way of getting on in the world is not the only way of getting on in the world. A lot of it's cultural, the way we get on in the world, and a lot of it's personal. And we must learn that the way another person does something is the way that person does something. Uh, This is in part because each of us are uniquely gifted, right? Uh, Many of you know my wife, Donna, who has gifts of serving. I know uh, we have this choir here, the Pint Size Praise Company, and years ago, my wife took up the mantle of helping our choir director, Pat, by saying, Pat, you do the music and the kids and the dancing and the choreography, and I'll make sure that all the behind-the-scenes details are taken care of. Now, uh, because my wife is that way, she's more energized by doing the dishes than engaging in a theological discussion. This is astonishing to me, but this is the way that she is. And so I sometimes find it annoying. I want to talk to her or share something I've read, and she's not really there she's, because she's 
She's actually making my life work, if you know what I mean by that. She's doing all the details, and I'm up here with my head in the clouds, and yet I find it annoying at times. And she more so finds it annoying that there's all these practical things that need to be done, and I'm sitting here reading a commentary on Romans. It is inconceivable to her that that should ever happen at any time in human history, right? Like, first, you clean. And then if there's any spare time, you do theology. And I'm exactly the opposite. So we're mutually annoying each other. And this requires what? Patience. So we're going to get into this. And uh, I, I want to say at the outset, this is very important. As we get into patience, understand that patience is not the same thing as passivity. Patience will say the hard thing. Patience will speak truth to power. Patient people will confront injustice. But here's the difference. When there's resistance, when change doesn't come immediately, the patient person doesn't resort to violence to solve the matter. Not only avoiding the violence of weapons, but also the violence of words. In other words, uh, if Brian and I are in a tussle ideologically, politically, theologically, and we're still in a tussle at the end of the conversation, I don't run to the next guy and say, hey, that guy's an idiot. And yet that's happening all the time presently in our culture, right? So understand that uh, patience is not advocating, you know, silence or quote, unquote, let's just get along and not share our feelings or opinions or anything like that. No, we're speaking truth, we're speaking conviction, but we're doing so from a place of wholeness and faith and love. And when we do that, there's patience. MLK spoke truth to power, had patience. Gandhi spoke truth to power, had patience. Sophie Scholl in Germany, uh, advocating the overthrow of the Reich, spoke truth to power, had patience. The point is not an advocate, the point isn't advocating silence. The point is, what's your motive? Is your motive love? Or, or when things don't go your way, do you resort to, you know, malice and slander and gossip and that kind of thing? And how you react when you respond is where patience is required. So that's the definition. Now, we're just going to very briefly this morning look at two examples of patience in the Bible, Moses and Jesus. Moses is my favorite guy in the Bible for several reasons. Uh, he's adopted. I'm adopted. Uh, he was called into ministry, but didn't want to be. I'm called into ministry, didn't want to be. He's a reluctant leader. I'm a reluctant leader. Uh, he had some patience. I have some patience. He failed. I failed. So I identify with him in many, many ways. Like one of my favorite guys in the Bible and, and, and so I want to give you the context just to see how patient Moses needed to be and how God teaches us patience by putting in our lives people who are unresponsive in the way that we'd like them to be responsive. And so in every situation in our lives, we will approach an encounter expecting it to go a certain way. We all do this, right? I remember going to camp as a kid, 
Uh, we just talked about camp today, and I'd, I'd go up to the Sierra Nevada mountains, go to camp in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and I'd have these, we call them mountaintop experiences, right? You know, you, you throw your sins in the fire, you know, in, in some way, and you sing kumbaya and stuff like that, and everybody's holding hands, everybody's crying, and everybody's sharing their testimonies. And then you're like this, I'm transformed. I'm going to go back a different, you know, I'm going to be a different, you know, 13-year-old. Now I'm going home, and, the, you know, on the way down the mountain, the camp, you know, the church bus, you're singing songs, you're learning to camp, and you're having a great time, you know. And then, in my case, anyway, you're going from the beauty of the high Sierra Nevada mountains, a mile high, and it's, you know, 75 or 80 degrees, rather than 115 down in Fresno, and then you drive down into the hot, dry, polluted valley, and then, you know, your parents pick you up at the, at the church, and then you drive you home, and you're imagining this beautiful relationship with your parents, and instead, I'll never forget this, my mom goes, hey, I've saved all the weeding for you. Get out in the yard and pull the weeds before dinner. And it's like, it's 110 degrees out there, and I'm out pulling weeds, and suddenly, I'm just so mad, and I was thinking, oh, you know, we're gonna have this beautiful moment, and she's gonna ask me all about camp, and we're gonna talk. And she goes, nope, we got company tonight. I went to the garden weeded. Get out there. Man, I was mad. That's, that's where patience is required, right? You have an expectation that a relationship's gonna go a certain way, and then it doesn't, and then you're like this. Okay, what do I do? Well, you need patience. So Moses, man, over and over and over again, encounters don't go the way he thinks they should. Well, here's some examples. First of all, just by context, I've already said to you, Moses has a job that he doesn't want. He tried once to uh, advocate in this kind of justice way for the, 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 the people of Israel, the Jews, get them delivered out of slavery in Egypt. His first try failed, then he went, so he ran away, lived in the desert for 40 years, got married, was perfectly happy. I'm married, I've got kids, I've got sheep. There's no social justice issues. There's, there's nothing to deal with here. I'm perfectly happy. And then God calls him because of his unique abilities and qualifications. And because God calls him, calls him back, go back to Egypt, confront the leader, deliver the people, lead them through the desert, into the promised land. He doesn't want to do it. You read about it in Exodus 4. God, here's four reasons why I'm the wrong guy. Boom, 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 boom. God answers every question. And still at the end of that, Moses says, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to go. And then God says, oh no, you're going. And so he does go. And the goal, of course, gain freedom for a group of people by advocating for them. And then once they're delivered from slavery, lead them through the wilderness. And along the way, the group will be shaped and challenged by living in the wilderness. And, and that shaping will transform them with the goal that by the time they enter the new land, they will be A, humble, B, grateful, uh, C, obedient worshipers of Jehovah. So that's the goal. You're gonna deliver these people lead them through this land for some undetermined length of time. They will face trials that will shape them so that they go into their new land, better people. That's the goal. And, and instead, here's what happens. He goes back to Egypt, but his first attempts at getting the people freed from the oppressive regime results in Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, making their lives harder rather than easier. And as a result... 
uh, the people go to Moses, who he had come to deliver. They come back to him, and they say, listen, hey, buddy, we wish you'd never come. Why don't you go back to, to, to the, the, the sheep and get out of here, because our lives are harder now. Thanks for nothing. So his first attempt at deliverance, disaster, the people who he sends to deliver say, we wish you'd never come. Then, after a series of miraculous displays of God's power, the Jews are set free and they leave the land. But then Pharaoh has a change of heart and sends his army after them, after he's released them. And so Pharaoh's army is going to to chase down uh, the Jews. And when the people are now up against it, there's the Red Sea in front of them. There's the Egyptian army behind them. This is what they say, I'm quoting now. They say to Moses, hey, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why did you deal with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better to die in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. We wish you'd never come. So his first two encounters are disasters. Then, miraculously, the Red Sea parts, they're delivered, and then in Exodus 15, there's a massive party. God is good. God is trustworthy. God will never fail us. And then at the end of that chapter, they're thirsty, and they they grumble against Moses, and they say, oh, you brought us out here to kill us with thirst. And then in Exodus 16, they're hungry, and they say, we wish we died in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. You brought us out here to kill us with hunger. Then God provides wonder bread because they're complaining and they eat. And then in chapter 17, they're thirsty again. And again, they say, why did you bring us out here to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They have seen miracle after miracle after miracle, 10 plagues from which they are spared. Um, their, Their children spared, miraculously led out of Egypt, miraculously led to the Red Sea, miraculously given water, miraculously given food, and now they're thirsty again. And what do they say to Moses? We hate you. Why'd you bring us out here? To kill us. And then they get more water. And then they complain about the woman that Moses marries. And that that complaint session is led by Aaron, his senior assistant, And then they complain about Moses' access to God. Why does Moses have access to God and we don't? And then they complain about the wonder bread that God gave them called manna. And they say, we're sick of it. We eat it morning, noon, and night. Give us meat to eat. And God gives them meat to eat. And then Moses, senior assistant leader, will lead all 2 million people to worship an idol while Moses is away at a conference where God is the keynote speaker. And then Moses is up there, he's receiving the law. And then in Exodus 32, 9, God says this, go down now, your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've quickly turned aside. They've made for themselves an idol. Now leave me alone, stand aside. I will kill them. We'll start over. I'll make you, Moses, a great nation. Now just stop right there. Had I been Moses, this would be my response. How far back do you want me to stand? Because I too am sick of these people. Every time anything happens, they blame me, they complain, they say, I've heard it half a dozen times, we wish you'd never come, so let's start over. That's what I would have said. Anybody else with me in the room? Absolutely. Like, don't even get me started. There are moments, in at least in ministry, 
when I'm like this? Who needs this? This is ridiculous. And that's how Moses felt. I know it is. And yet, when God says, stand aside that I may destroy them, I'll make you a great nation, what does Moses do? He falls on his face and intercedes and asks God not to destroy the people. And then, that's in Exodus, and if you know your Bible, it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, whatever, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's narrative in uh, Exodus and Numbers, a bunch of it about Moses. And so this is the first time of many times when you hear this. God says something to Moses, stand back, I'll destroy the people, or go deal with the people, or whatever. And then it says Moses fell on his face, fell on his face. You read it over uh, six times in Exodus and Numbers. Moses fell on his face, interceded for the people. You'll notice Moses in heaven, his nose is bruised, falling on his face all the time, right? He's always interceding for the people. So here's the situation. He intercedes, and and God doesn't destroy the people. And then go to Numbers 11. Moses faces more complaining in Numbers 11, enough so that in Numbers 11, God, uh, Moses says this to God. God, listen, if I have to lead these people one more day, kill me now, because I'm so tired of the complaining. And then this is followed with an outright rebellion in Numbers 13 when it's time to enter the promised land, and they refuse to enter. This was the goal. This was the vision. And now Israel, having seen God provide over and over and over and over and over again for for two years, now they're like this, nope, we're not going in. We will not go into the promised land. And not only that, but they say in Numbers 14, verses two through four, hey, we're sick of this guy. Let's appoint a new leader and go where? Does anyone know where they want to go? Back to Egypt. And they kind of romanticize their days of slavery. And they go, you know what? At least in Egypt, we had garlic. And, 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 and so I'd rather have garlic and slavery than, you know, milk and honey and, and, and uh, big grapes and freedom. Back to Egypt. And still, Moses stays with them. So all of this is backdrop. Now, Moses has been faithfully leading them now for over two years. And by the time you get to Numbers chapter 20, they're thirsty again, and they say again, God's provided for them for two years. They say, oh, he brought us out here to kill us with thirst. And then what does God say? Do you know the story? God says to Moses, hey, uh, here's a rock. Uh, Speak to the rock and water will come out of the rock. And then Moses says, uh, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but this is what he says. Hey, you rebels. Who's going to provide water? And then Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. Water comes out. And, and then, astonishingly to me, what does God say to Moses? Hey, because you just did that terrible thing, you will not enter the promised land. And I'm like this. No! Why? Like, God, come on, God. Can I never blow it? Not even once? You get mad at me? So you see Moses' incredible patience. And yet you see that in spite of that patience, 
he's not able to enter the promised land. And it's a question I struggle with is, you know, why is he shut out? But here's the thing. If you go to Hebrews 11, this is what you discover. Hebrews 11, this articulation of the most faithful people ever to live. Uh, You see in Hebrews 11 that uh, it says, all those who were faithful died without receiving the fullness of what was promised. So watch this. All of us will die going, oh, I wish I'd seen a little bit more, right? Something. There's something yet to happen. And Moses is in that camp, right? Didn't receive what was promised. So we all, in the end, carry the torch of this eternal race, like these saints going all the way back to to Moses, we have the torch right now, but we're going to hand the torch to somebody else, and then we'll be out of the story, and it's okay, but we will die without seeing the whole story fulfilled. It'll happen to all of us. My grandmother, um, who was so instrumental in my faith, died of cancer, and I was with her when she discovered that there was no more treatment for her cancer, and she started weeping. And this is what she said. She said, I'm not done. She wanted to keep offering hospitality, keep loving her grandkids, keep making cinnamon rolls, keep offering hugs, keep offering words of affirmation. My sister died at 42. When she died of a heart attack, she left four young children. She wasn't finished. Scott Becker, who was on staff here, he died of cancer in his 40s. He wasn't finished. So Moses died without entering the land of promise. He he saw from a distance, but he didn't get there. Why does God do it this way? Look, uh, if you're not going to see everyone change, not going to see your vision fulfilled, whether it's vision for your children or your organization or your nation, if you're not going to see the end of the story, what motivates you? And and here's the answer. Uh, God is enough. In Exodus 33, here's Moses' prayer as he anticipates continuing the journey through the wilderness. He says, listen, these people have complained and complained and complained. What will enable me to keep going? This is what he says. Show me your glory. In other words, watch this. If I, if I know God, if I know God is enough, that intimacy will sustain me. I'm not talking about doctrinal knowledge right now. I'm talking about intimacy. I've met God. God is with me. God is raining down gifts of beauty. This will keep me going and enable me to continue to serve in spite of setbacks, in spite of annoyances, in spite of failures, and that will be in me creating patience. I must seek the glory of God. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 3 that when we make gazing at God's glory our primary consideration, then God is transforming us so that we are beginning to look more and more like God, the fruit of the Spirit, from glory to glory to glory. So as I, so, my motive isn't, you know, success or market share or changing the world. What feeds my soul is intimacy with my Creator. Love God. It starts there every time. I went way too long on Moses. I apologize. Now we got Jesus in two minutes left, but I'm going to try to do this, all right? So when you look at Jesus, you see perfect patience. Remember this? How long will I put up with you? Matthew 17, he says. Remember in Luke 9, a couple of disciples, uh, some people are resistant to the message. 
And what do the disciples say? Hey, you want us to rain down fire from heaven on these guys? And what does Jesus say? He says, no, no. Again, paraphrasing. Look, chill out. Unless they're, you know, overtly against us, they're for us. Wouldn't you love to hear that today? Disciples saying to Jesus, Mark 10, 35, as Jesus is anticipating his death, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Well, what do you want? Well, we want to set your right and left hand. Yeah, you know, I'm about to be arrested, executed, betrayed. Yeah, yeah, well, whatever, interesting. Come on, who's going to sit on the right? Who's going to sit on the left? And Jesus, tremendous patience. Jesus predicts the denial of all the disciples. Mark 14, 26 to 31. Jesus in the garden, he's praying. The disciples fall asleep. Jesus comes, he says, man, all I ask you guys, stay awake and pray with me. And they didn't do it. Um, Disappointed expectations, again and again and again and again. And then, you know, Peter's denial after the arrest. If this is perfect patience, we learn that under the umbrella of patience, there's room for frustration, exasperation, annoyance, irritation. I mean, this is Jesus. How long do I have to put up with you? He's frustrated. So what's significant, patience is not this like um, zen-like state where I'm impervious to frustration. No. It's the absence of anger, slander, malice. Patience is ripened and finds its full expression when Peter denies Jesus. And then at the end of the story, Jesus restores Peter. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm still for you. I'm still with you. You're, You're still in my family because watch this. My love for you, my commitment to you, my walking with you, most important thing, is not predicated on your perfect performance. Boy, we need to hear that today. One of the kind of below-the-line painful memories in my life was uh, was a Sunday afternoon playing flag football with the youth group in my church when I was in junior high. And I never played football because I'm a little too wiry, I would say, too thin. But um, I could catch a ball really well, including football. And so I, this, this guy was a football player and he was coaching our side of the team and play. he was the quarterback. He was the youth pastor, and he had me out here as a wide receiver, and he, he said, okay, he said, Richard, nobody's going to expect you to catch the ball, so uh, you just uh, stay put, and when the man guarding you takes off to guard this other guy, run out to the flat. Well, I didn't know what the flat was, apparently, and so uh, the play unfolds. I'm alone, but in the wrong place. And he throws the ball to a different place. And then he just had a temper tantrum and dressed me down in front of the whole youth group. You didn't do the right thing. 
I thought I could count on you. I can't count on you. Get off the field. Like, I'll never forget it. That really kind of wounded me, you know? And it sends a message. Perform or get out. I'm just here to tell you, that's not the gospel message. If we create with one another an atmosphere of patience, patience breeds grace. Do you know what I mean by that? Patience breeds grace. So if Brian and I are annoyed with each other, but we stay in relationship, that relationship, in spite of petty annoyances, becomes a safe place. If it's a safe place, then Brian's able to bring confession, and so am I. And then when we bring confession, do you know what? Confession, James 5, leads to healing, leads to transformation. But without patience, I'm always on pins and, needle, pins and needles. Have I done enough? Served enough? Obeyed enough? What do people think of me? My hope and prayer for Bethany Community Church is that we would be increasingly, as we re-engage, a community not where we all think exactly like, that's not the main thing, but rather a community where in spite of differences, in spite of annoyances, we're patient with one another. Because patience breeds grace, and grace brings transformation, and then we look more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we can gather here today. Thank you for your presence with us, and thank you for this powerful call to patience. I pray, Father, that uh, we would each of us internalize what you've revealed to us, that we might look to you and particularly guide us today, Father, to pray for those in our lives where the relationship is strained. Would you develop in us patience so that these relationships might move forward in a redemptive way? And we'll thank you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.